You're listening to The Rhythm of Rebellion with Taina Asili. Music maker Senia Rubinos uses her powerful voice to create beats and melodies from scratch. Senia's sound grows from a wide range of musical influences, from Caribbean rhythms and beat music to minimalism and indie rock, all delivered with a soulful punk aura. With her most recent album, Una Rosa, and accompanying music videos, she continues to push musical and creative boundaries even further. On today's show, Senia speaks with me about her history, her creative process, and some of the personal and powerful themes woven into her new album. Hi, Senia. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so grateful to have you on the show. How are you doing? Hi, Taina. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Um, I have been a longtime fan of your work, uh, seeing it um, around in my circles, in my community. I haven't gotten to see you live yet, but I hope to. Um, but I have listened to your music, particularly your new album, which is really powerful and I'm really looking forward to getting to talk to you more about it today. I wanted to start by having a conversation about some of your earlier journey in music. Um, I was reading in an interview you did with Tape Op about some of your earlier roots and seeing a reflection in my own story of growing up in a home where there was like salsa and folkloric music happening uh, from Puerto Rico and Cuba. And then, you know, the classical music getting or maybe I, I'm, I'm curious if, it, if you were engaged in that or if just your father wanted you to engage in that. Uh, but more importantly, falling in love with Mariah Carey and sort of that like pop music, vocal vibe, R&B vibe. Um, and, you know, I'm just curious about where that story took you and how that thread connects you or roots you in what you do today. Thank you. Yeah, great question. Um, I grew up, yeah, in a Cuban and Puerto Rican house. Um, my dad was a huge classical music fan, listened to Prokofiev and Ravel and really wanted me. He had always wanted to be a classical pianist, um, but couldn't pursue that passion. And I think he was hoping that I would do that or that I would be an opera singer or do something in the classical realm. And he saw that I was really interested in music as a young child and you know in our household like music was always a part of our everyday life whether it was just like having it on while we're doing housework or dancing together um you know family meals family parties whatever so it was always a part of of my life from early on and i took an interest in it and yeah i discovered i discovered mariah carey when i was like seven my mom was more in, into like pop things. Mm. Like she would listen to Boy George and Madonna and yes. and Whitney Houston. And I just remember her being huge in Whitney Houston. And, and then Mariah, like a Mariah tape showed up at the house and I was like, what? And I kind of <laughs> lost it. And so I had like her poster on my door. It was a whole yes. thing. I was in love. And so I just yes. wanted to be her. I was like, whatever it takes, like doing all, I was doing all the runs. I was like practicing every day. Yes. No one would make me do this, but I would like lock myself in my room and just like learn every song and practice it over and over again. And I was like, I want to be a singer. So that was me at like five or six, you know, and 
my dad was like, you need to learn how to read music. If you want to be Maria Cari, you need to learn how to read music. So mm-hmm. pick an instrument and like, let's go. So I was very fortunate that he was like so invested in this and found like a private teacher for me. But I was not interested in it. I didn't like I did learn. I did learn how to read music because of that. But I was like, when is this over? When can I sing? You know, I really just wanted to sing. Um, You know, eventually, like in high school, I got into jazz music a bit. And then I, you know, when it came around time to think about college, I was like, I don't I just kind of wanted to move to New York and make music. I didn't really wasn't really interested in college, but my parents were not having that. So Luckily, they they agreed. They uh, let me go to a music school, um, which was not an easy discussion to have. But mm. um, <laughs> I went to I went to music school. I studied jazz at Berklee College of Music in Boston, and it was a long journey. My time there kind of took me away from my voice, which is my primary instrument. Um, it was a very male centric, kind of macho, uh, clicky scene Mm -hmm. and I really wanted to be taken seriously and I also found myself being frustrated by interpreting the songs of other people and I wanted to make my own thing so I started composing I studied jazz composition started just listening to as much music as possible and during those couple years my musical palette really exploded like it went from you know I grew up listening to salsa in the house my dad would take me to the opera. He would take me to symphony. So I had that in my ear as well. He was always listening, always playing me that stuff. Although it wasn't really my my jam, except for Romeo and Juliet, like the ballet. That was like the only thing that I was like, oh, because I felt like I heard these melodic themes that I could really Interesting. like hold on to. And that was very, that piece was very special to me. But, you know, that, that was kind of the music I grew up on. And then the radio, like 90s hip hop, Missy Elliott, you know, Lauren Hill, obviously Mariah Carey, whatever. But so when I went to Berkeley, I was listening, you know, to a lot of jazz, which I had been doing in high school. And that's what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to be a jazz singer. And then at Berkeley, I just started listening to music. I was working at their library and I would just take out at that time, I would take out like all the CDs and like every night I would just like burn all the CDs. And, like... I remember doing that at the library. <laughs> I loved that. It was such a great way to explore new music. It was, you know, pre Spotify, pre yes. all this. So yeah, that's what I was up to. And I listened to Bjork, Pixies. Yes. Um, you know, just really that kind of blew my mind. I was like, what is this Bjork yes. thing? Like I've never heard anything like oh, this. Mind blowing. So that was a game changer. And then Eventually, I moved to New York and started, you know, writing music for my own bands. And I was more coming from a composer stance. I wasn't really singing as much. And then a big turning point for me was when I started playing keyboard and like live looping my voice and doing that kind of stuff. And that led to my first record, Magic Tricks. So that leads to Una Rosa. And I'm curious about, you know, your voice in this is really unique there are some powerful themes on this album. I wanted to kind of like pull apart what some of those themes are. Uh, I wanted to start by looking at Don't Put Me in Red, what your intention and process of creation was for that song specifically. Yeah, the, uh, Don't Put Me in Red started a couple years ago while I was touring. Um, I was playing bass on my 
second album, um, Black Terry Cat, and I was like noodling around on the bass and kind of came up with this intro. And for a time while I was working on this record, I was kind of stuck. I was really stuck in, in every way. And musically specifically, I was only writing intros. Like I would spend hours writing in these like kind of classical, like flowery intros. Not many of them made it onto the record, but Don't Put Me In Red is one of the ones that did make it. Um, so the, the song starts with this kind of instrumental introduction where I'm singing and uh, doubling the melody on the bass. And I had had this idea of Don't Put Me In Red, of making a song Don't Put Me In Red, which lyrics rarely come first for me. Um, but in this case, I was like, I want to p- make a song about this feeling of being on tour and having, you know, being in these venues where a lot of times I was an opener on tour. So I was touring with another band. I didn't have my own crew. So I was working with whoever was at the venue. It was a lot of rock clubs. Most of the times I, I was the only non-white person there. A lot of times I was the only female that was working that night. And so it it was a lot. And it was a sometimes an aggressive environment to be in. And I started noticing that the lighting designers, the lighting techs would often just put me in red in like a wash of red light. And I started to feel like, oh, it's because I'm Latina. And like, this is the Latina lighting. Uh, and I started being, I, I, I just felt bad. And I felt like, oh, this is just, they don't care. Or they're just looking at me with like, oh, whatever, red, you know? And it may or may not have been the case, but it, it became a racial thing. It became like a racial aggression to me of like that I had no control over because this person was back there. They just put me in this light and I had no, no say in it. So I started to go up to the lighting tech during sound check if I had time to try to meet who they were and ask them, please don't put me in red. So that was like the thing I would say every night over and over again, please don't put me in red, anything you want, but don't put me in red. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, this is a song. Like this is a thing. And I, but I couldn't find the words like I really could like it took me years and that of having that idea and like having this melody come out and this bass intro and this thing but it was wordless and I was like I don't know where this is gonna go like I, I this needs words but I don't have the words to say what I'm feeling you know it just none of the words felt complete you know like mm-hmm. nothing mm-hmm. felt right and it was just such a it was a feeling that was so raw and so large for me that I almost like I couldn't eat it like I couldn't digest it to make words so I left the intro wordless um which it, it is on the record and then the lyrical part of the verses came when I was just improvising over this beat um in my studio looking at a map of Puerto Rico so I was I have a, this map of Puerto Rico that's like illustrated and it has the names of some towns on it. And so I just started, I was looking at it and just started singing the names of these towns, which are so beautiful and so musical. And that was the thing that got me unstuck by just making that kind of riff on all of these towns, these words started to come out. These harmonies started to come out. These like, these three sisters, I call them, like these three voices that were like very tight harmonies started to come through. And yeah, and that's how the song was born. And um, in terms of the production, we kind of let it be minimal so that the voice could really stand out and tried to track like that hook where I say, don't put me in red, tried to track it in a really intimate and vulnerable way. Yeah. And just kind of let it be naked and try to transmit that energy and that feeling. Yeah.
there's something about that song that resonates with me so deeply in terms of the boxes that I get put into as a Latina artist to only perform when there's a Latin series, right? Or when there's the Latin show is when they'll play my music and my music is so much more expansive. And I was curious about, you know, some of the intention there for you in regards to that experience of being put in red. What has your experience been in relationship to perhaps limitations, boxes, or categories that you've been put into as an artist? I think early on, I was really fighting tooth and nail every day. I was always on the defense, um, sometimes to my detriment, but I was always in boxing stance. I was always defensive of myself and of my work and of wanting to be seen and heard in all the spaces that my peers were, because I was like, why not? You know, like if I'm making an album that is more like alternative rock and punk and you know bass and that's what the music is then why am I on this Latin program and like what does this have to do with anything and why you know and it's like and it's not and it's complicated you know but I I really was taking the stance of almost like I don't want to do any interviews with any media that is Latin focused like that was I was really on that stance of like I'm not doing that because it was so extreme it was such an extreme response but it was to an extreme situation. Yeah. And, you know, I I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to progress or to get my music heard by people who I think would actually like it or understand what I'm doing if I continue to just be like put into this Latin, you know, Chiquita Banana night, whatever Latino celebration right. is happening because you're just not even listening to my work. So it was an extreme stance to take early on. But, you know, on my second album, I started to see that things were shifting and changing. And I remember starting the press cycle for Black Terry Cat, my second album. And the people who really embraced me, this is what's so tricky, is like the people who really embraced me early on and championed my music were all Latinx people. You know, they mm-hmm. were all like Latinx journalists yeah. and who, who were seeing and appreciating what I was making. Truth. And they knew what I was, they knew what I was doing and they weren't minimizing me and they were intelligent and they were talking about the music and they were coming from the right place. And it kind of took my breath away. It kind of took me aback and like slapped me in the face real quick. And I was like, Hey girl, está bien todo. like it's good that you want to, you know, assert yourself in, in other spaces, but also like take a seat for a minute and check out who is here in front of you today. And it's it's not someone who's minimizing you. It is someone who's understanding what you're doing and give it a shot. So I think there was nuance that I had to learn. Yeah. But there was a reason why (laughs) I was Mm -hmm. I was like fighting tooth and nail. And it was really frustrating. Like early on, a lot of the music blogs was like, I, I would never see somebody who looked like me on there. It was impossible. And like, no one would talk about this. Like it wasn't, it was just like, shh, whatever the indie alternative scene it's white yeah and no one would talk about it and nobody it was just not a thing but i was like hello like are y'all crazy yeah there are people making music this music who aren't white like and who aren't men you know let's go like where are we at but you know it's changed things have progressed and changed and shifted in the last decade thank god um and i feel like i am still having some of the same conversations Um, And I get asked about it a lot, but there's so much more. There's so much more representation. There's so much space. There's a lot, there's a long way to go, but I feel like 
yeah, I feel like things are, are different and I'm constantly, you know, meeting the moment and meeting myself in this, in this landscape and like seeing where, where my work lands and with who and mm. all that. Mm. I really appreciate your insight into that. There's definitely a difference between being tokenized and boxed and being um, lifted up by our community and seen and and people who have fought to carve spaces and create spaces for our work to have visibility. I wanted to look at another song from your album called Who Shot Ya? And I really love the music video for that as well, the movement and your music videos. Listeners, y'all got to check out these music videos. They're super, super beautiful and powerful. Could you tell us a little bit more about the intention and process for that song? Yeah, Who Shot You was the first song I released from Una Rosa, and it was the most immediate kind of, we, we made the song in the studio. My co-producer Marco Buccelli and I like finished this track, and then a couple weeks later I shot the video and we released it. Um, and so that felt amazing after going through a period of time of like just real kind of machination over this music and my art making and it felt so good to just have this experience that was so fluid you know and it was in the summer of uh just complete and utter like breakdown and chaos in the city and I was living in Bed-Stuy at the time in New York uh we were protesting you know the the murders of George Floyd Breonna Taylor the police brutality was like everything was at a boiling point and I had this beat that I had made in the studio, just messing around on a keyboard. And then everything happened really quick. Like I just felt so angry and I was just seeing all of my friends on the street every day, like screaming and protesting and thinking like, seeing these murders happen, you know, thinking about Trayvon that, you know, I had I had thought about Trayvon when I, on my second album, Black mm-hmm. Stars, when I was making that song. And it was like, I'm like, this is just outrageous. Like, what is it gonna take? Like, when can we, not be in this situation mourning and screaming our heads off every day in the street. When can this change? And so I was angry and I got into the vocal booth and I remember I was just like kind of riffing and making these sounds and kind of growling. And I was like, I got to go get my grills. So I put my gold grills in my Mm -hmm. mouth and I was like thinking about this mouth full of teeth that was like angry. And I just started riffing on it and yeah. And the verses came really quick. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was, you know, it's a song like in solidarity to my friends who are out protesting every day. I mention like the murder of Breonna Taylor. I mention that the government is is kicking Latinos out left and right, but without without us, like you wouldn't have a society that's running and that we built the cities and the towns that you live in and we make them run. Um, mm-hmm. I reference Jose Marti, the Cuban poet. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was like, there's a lot of references in there, um, but it came out kind of like off the cuff and I felt like it was just the right moment and it felt really good to be able to express myself in that way in that moment in real time. Do you use a lot of improvisation initially as you're working? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I, I rarely have a preconceived idea of what's gonna happen before it happens, you know, and it's kind of more, I feel like I spend more time preparing for the act of improvisation than I do in the writing because it's really like, yeah, it's like making the conditions for improvisation to to happen, for you to be in a flow and for something to to come out. And then it's about the editing process and like looking back and seeing like, 
observing, like stepping out of yourself of that improvising flow state and then stepping out and looking at it and, and putting your glasses on and, you know, kind of being the editor yeah. or the photographer of what just happened, you know? Yeah. When you say preparing, what what's a couple things that come to mind as a part of that preparation? Well, I think, you know, like, what are the tools that you're going to be using in this moment of play, right? So like, what are the, what are the instruments or what are the textures or what are the images? What are the words? What is, what's the environment um, that you're in? You know, kind of preparing yourself to, for me, it's like helpful to have a few things to have limitations. So it's like, okay, I'm going to use this, this and that. Yeah. Or just like having things ready to play. Um, And then maybe what is the spark? Like, what's the impetus? What is lighting me on fire today? Mm. Like, what Mm. is that? Um, Mecha, like the candle. What is How do you call that? The can, the wick, the candle. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. What is that today? You know, or like, what is that in this moment? That's going to really ignite some kind of flow for me right so i feel like yeah like research reading like tapping in movement now recently um working with more movement has been important yeah to kind of like get into my body in a different way connect in a different way Earlier, you talked about the voice being your primary instrument, uh, but what I've noticed in your art that you share today is that you incorporate a lot of different elements, including movement, perhaps like a theatrical performance art type of presentation on stage, as well as in your music videos. How do you identify as an artist and what are some of these creative elements that you love to explore? Yeah, I think I I always think of myself as a musician first, you know, like, but I also realize that I have passion for other things, you know, but but that all center around like the music making experience um, and performance, you know, and I'm passionate about performance. I love being on stage. Um, And a thought that I had last year in one of the first performances that I'd had in years was any moment that you're not doing this is a waste of time. Mm. And that just, it was like this thought that like hit me like a ton of bricks while I was on stage. So I think, yeah, performance is really important to me. It's an important part of what I do. And I had always been moving on stage, you know, jumping around, just like naturally like moved by the music and what I'm doing. But, you know, I was really curious to see how I could incorporate that, those movements in a more intentional way and how I'm performing and what people are seeing and experiencing. So in this last tour of Una Rosa, I got to uh, collaborate with Yara Travieso, who's a Cuban-Venezuelan director, filmmaker, choreographer. Um, and together with her, we we made a, a stage show for the record. And I got to think about the staging of it and kind of treated it like a cross between an obra de teatro, like a, a theater piece, performance art, and like a a rock like arena show or something you know it was like our own like cross into this new world um so yeah i'm very inspired by using movement in my performance but also in my composition process is something i'm working on right now is like thinking about and hopefully putting into practice ways to incorporate that movement yeah in the early early process of making music as opposed to at the end Mm. where we're choreographing something 
Mm. But using it as like another tool in the studio, like a punto de partida, uh, like a stepping stone to making musical ideas. Because my, my voice is my primary instrument, it's in my body. So it's only natural that movement would be a part of that process. Absolutely. When you look at like our folkloric traditions, like going back, you know, centuries, we see that like movement, you know, instrumentation, the voice, it's all folded in. It's all one. It's you can't pull them apart. And I see that in your work. I feel that in my work as creativity being our human birthright, you know, being able to explore that in, in the most expansive sense of what that means. You know, I think that some of us find ourselves rooted in one form of art creation, you know, so like for myself, also the voice is, you know, my center, you know, of my creative process is in the, is in the voice. But from that center, I reach out in so many different directions. And I think sometimes like capitalism and industry can kind of confine us to what we create when we're making work for product and not process. So it's for myself, it's important to kind of just can break out of those those limitations and really see what what creativity wants from me. So Oof, you said it. That's a word that you just said. <laughs> yeah. Creating for product, not process. That mm-hmm. was yeah, gems. Speaking of gems, I am sure that you have some powerful gems. And I always like to end my interviews by asking artists if you have three important teachings that you've learned through your craft, through your career, that you would want to share with other artists that are seeking to use their work as a contribution for making powerful, positive change in our world? Well, when you say, you know, making work that can contribute to social change and, you know, community healing, the first thing that comes to mind is that, you know, I I didn't really set out with that intention in my work necessarily to say like, I'm going to make music that, you know, affects social change or that's protest music or that speaks to this thing. I was really communicating my experience, my lived experience, the experience of my family and my community around me and, you know, funneling that through my musical language that I was learning and making up at the time. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be said in this process of um, authenticity and of knowing where we come from and, you know, of telling our stories. There's just a lot of power in that. And I think that what I've seen reflected back at me time and time again is that people feel, they, they, they feel, empathic frequency with the work that I'm making when I'm telling something that's very personal to me or when I'm telling a truth that might not be reflected in the way that I said it, even if it's not in this most refined way in the perfect word and the, because sometimes we get stuck in that, right? Of like, oh, but how can I say this thing? But, but, but it's like not getting caught up in that and stepping out on faith and trusting that if you're saying something in in the way that is genuine to you and that is true for you and the way that you felt it in that moment, someone else is going to vibrate with that. And that is so powerful. And that is going to meet someone 
And in the moment when they most need to hear that, it's going to empower someone to step out and speak on something that they've been thinking or to step out and feel less alone. So I, I do think that, yeah, I guess like that authenticity and like stepping out on that faith that you're enough already, you know, of just you sure. saying what your truth is, right. it's enough and it's, it's, enough. it's powerful. Just being there and being you is like very powerful. Um, oh, I gotta go for three teachings. I'm like, maybe I, I, I still have a lot to learn. You know what? Like, There's honestly. a lot in there. There is so much. I feel like that was basically like three teachings, right? Like there is so much oh in goodness. finding the courage to speak our authentic truth. You know, that is itself a powerful act of social change, especially for those of us who have histories of oppression in our in our lives, which, you know, limit us from being able to freely speak our authentic truth just to do that is mm -hmm. such a powerful act and in that it's an unveiling it's a releasing it's a process of liberation and an invitation for mm -hmm. others to do the same you know you know i think one other thing that comes to mind is also um all related to like the believe your own hype advice that i used to tell people when they ask like oh what's one piece of advice like believe your own hype like believe in whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is, like go in, go inward, go into your own castle, get in there. Don't be afraid to go really deep into that, to those ideas. And it, I think in our culture always, but you know, especially right now and on social media, it can get really tricky to, you know, and difficult to not compare yourself to others, to see like, what is everybody else doing? Or what's the moment now and what's needed and what's the market saying? Or what about this other person doing this other thing? You know, it gets distracting and gets noisy, right? So I think that it's important to, to have a network. It's important to know what's happening. It's important to build community and to be out with folks. However, I think it's in order to really be effective, I think you really gotta go in first, right? Yes. Like you gotta go inward to like foster that kind of creativity, to, to feed your imagination so that you can be rooted in your actions. If you wanna, you know, create change and you wanna contribute to your community, right? Like you wanna be coming from a space that's centered. You wanna be coming from a space of flow. You wanna be, you know, coming from a space of passion and joy where you're like really in step with yourself, right? With what you're uniquely positioned to do. You're uniquely, here to offer right um because i really do believe like everybody has many callings like not just one you can have many that's right um but just to be rooted in that i think is so important you know um and to kind of yeah try to center and cancel out some of that noise you know like knowing when to go in so that you can come out to the community and and share and, and be of help and and useful in that way absolutely absolutely Senia, this has been such a beautiful conversation. I, I wish we could keep going for so much longer, um, but I'm so grateful that you took the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Diana. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to The Rhythm of Rebellion. I want to thank our guests today as well as Moses Nagel, our editor, Sina Basila Hickey, and all of our partners at Hudson Mohawk Magazine. You can find me on Facebook at Taina Asili Music, on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at Taina Asili, and at tainaasili.com. Peace, love, and liberation.